Sam. Yeah, Don? What's the path? Psycho. That's not a path. There are many paths on the journey through life. I think I might have chosen the psychopath. Where'd you hear that? I I heard heard it it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collective voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. Hiya, Sam. Hey, Don. What's going on, man? I am letting go as hard as I possibly can. Oh, wow. I am having a true deja vu moment. Letting go. It's really a tough (laughs) thing, isn't it? It is. Sometimes things just don't go my way, like when we started this recording. (laughs) Both of us forgot to hit record. So we really didn't start the recording. (laughs) We just started having a fantastic conversation. (laughs) You know, the whole idea of the podcast is to record the conversation. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes it easier for people to listen in whenever they want to. (laughs) Well, today we're going to do a segment called Ask the Old Timer. And we have someone who has phoned in a question and we found an old timer to answer the question. Go to aagrapevine.org slash podcast, and there you'll be able to see how you can submit your question for the old timer. So the question, of course, is what's an old timer? Well, what is an old timer, Don? (laughs) An old timer is someone who has more sobriety than I do. (laughs) So even if it's like, what are you, 26 years, 27 years? 27. So 27 plus a day over your makes them instantly an old timer, right? I think that makes an old timer. (laughs) (laughs) Let's bring our guest in and get her reflection on if she's an old timer or not. I think that's a fantastic idea. Hi, Sam. Hi, Don. Hi, everybody. So happy to be here. My name is Allison, and I am in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Hey, Allison, thank you so much for joining us and for sticking around for take two. (laughs) I am thrilled to be here, albeit conflicted about this old timer thing. I do technically have 32 years. My sobriety date is February 4th, 1989. But I'm only 53 years old. So I was about to say that means you got math is obviously not a strong suit for me because that tells me you got sober when you were 12, right? (laughs) That's right. I do like to say in some of the meetings that I go to with some of the people I think are old timers, when they're celebrating, I like to lean over and whisper things like, Oh, I was eight when you got sober. Or, oh, I think I just started middle school when you got sober. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun to do that, isn't it? It is. See, you said you got sober in 1989. So that means that I turned 19 that year. Oh, so Hmm. we're, we're kind of peers. I was 21 when I got sober. So, oh, that means you had some legal drinks then. I had a few. I had 90 days. You know how you say 90 and 90? Well, I had 90 days of legal drinking, 90 and 90 before I got sober. 
So it's like just open the floodgate. It was legal to drink. And within three months, you knew you were an alcoholic. Because obviously you didn't <laughs> drink any before it was legal, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of wish that was my story, a 90-day crash and burn. That's not actually really what my story is, though. I was drinking Long for before. years before I turned 21. I think I had my first drink, my first intentional drink at 13. Oh, wow. I didn't start drinking until I was 18. Even then, I was drank just a little bit. I drank only on the weekends, and slowly it accelerated. I wasn't allowed to. I, I didn't have access to it. My parents, you know, I had that sip of beer every now and then as a child, but that didn't count. It was the, uh, when I was finally able to drink like I wanted to, it was because I made myself a fake ID. Uh, oh, and yes. that worked. So that was like at age 18 or something like that. But all the people that I was hanging out with, the uh, the partiers would not let me drink because I was underage. So they let me use outside issues. I see. I see. Uh, well, I had access. My parents had a lot of liquor in the house. My friends and I took full advantage of that. We took full advantage of the liquor and beer in everybody else's house. And most of us <laughs> had older siblings as well. Wow. You were set up for the party. Yes, <laughs> indeed I was. And I understand it to be a party. And it, for me, drinking was a party. Long, long. For me, it was a party. I don't think I really determined that drinking was a problem for me until I was 35. And then I spent about five years of trying to control my drinking because now I've got a problem. I, I don't want to be an alcoholic. So the end of my drinking was locking down on it. How did you come to the place that you determined that this is a problem and I need, of all things, help with this? That's a great question. My story's a little different in that it's really tightly interwoven with childhood trauma. So drinking for me really became a foolproof numbing agent. It was something that really allowed me to survive some pretty difficult circumstances. So it worked for me really well. And because that was the function it had for me from the beginning, I don't think there was ever even a small window of social drinking. I was using it really as medicine. Mm. And by the time I left for college at 18, almost 19, my life was so unmanageable that drinking wasn't even reliably working as the numbing agent I needed it to be. So sometimes it would work. Sometimes it would turn on me and things internally actually felt much worse for me when I was drinking. And so I spent the last two years of my drinking really on that roller coaster, just, you know, escalating how much I was drinking and how often I was drinking, hoping to get that sweet relief of just totally numbed out and don't care. Comfortably numb. Yeah, I think is the way the song goes. That's how yes. it does. I relate to that. I have shared for years that drinking saved my life. Yeah. Um, if I had not had access to alcohol and, and other things during my, my teens and twenties, mm -hmm. you know, I, I would have killed myself because mm -hmm. of the things that I was going through at that mm -hmm. point. And mm -hmm. it made life. It was a solution. It was a solution. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So how did you come to the place where when I came in, I felt like I'm giving up the one thing that's holding me together, which is drinking. Mm -hmm. Yet it was the problem I discovered very soon, but it didn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. Can you share what happened that made the switch to go, I can't do this anymore and I need help? Mm -hmm. I really like how you framed that question. It sounds different than how people, I think, typically ask what happened. In one of the great ironies of my life, my family came together on my behalf, which was super unusual. It was not the norm and did an intervention. And I went to treatment. And the way that they, they were schooled in how to do the intervention so wisely, because the way it was framed to me was that I could get away for a bit. And I was all about getting away for a bit because the snowball of consequences was right on my heels. Mm -hmm. And so treatment looked like almost like a uh, residential spa situation. Now, when I got there, <laughs> that was not the case. <laughs> that was not the case. But I mean, if I'm really honest, it still seemed like an out to me, like a way to delay consequences. And so it really wasn't until several months into sobriety that I was really able to grab a hold of the second and third step that things really shifted for me. I had to really understand that although alcohol had helped me survive, it was no longer an answer for me. And so I had to start grappling with what was going to be an answer for me. I mean, at 21, that's, that's a long life ahead of me that I had to figure out. And so really starting to break down the barriers and a God of my understanding and understanding how to develop a partnership with that God was a big turning point for me. It was, it became the new lifeline for me to hang on to. It wasn't even AA in general first. It was more of grappling with the second and third step because there were people in AA that were safe for me and that were helpful for me. And there were meetings that were that way. But as a 21 year old, especially back in the, in the late eighties, it was rough in some AA meetings. So I had to you know, stay real close to some of the women that I met then and have them help me start to get a hold of the second and third step. So the second and third step or came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity and made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. Did you have problems with the language, him? Oh, yeah. I had problems with the language. I had problems with God in general because of the trauma. I really was like, okay, this isn't going to work for me because if there was some kind of loving God, then why in the world did my childhood unfold the way that it did? Why, you know, is something inherently wrong with me? Has God forgotten about me? And I had to wrestle with all of that. And thankfully, I had a really wise sponsor who had been sober a long time. Who An was old really timer, you might say. An old timer, yeah. An old timer who really helped me walk through that in some maybe not so typical ways, but exactly the the ways that would help me break down those barriers and, and figure out a God of my understanding. 
So one of the things I'm hearing from you talking about this is that you did not have the, the white light experience, the burning bush experience. It was more of the educational variety. Is that correct? That's another great question. I would say both and. I would say I had to struggle as long as I had to struggle until I could really open up to have a little bit of that white light. There were, for about two and a half years, early in my sobriety, my sponsor used to take me every Friday night to Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity. Where is that? It was in Southeast DC. We would go meditate with these nuns who lived by divine providence. They didn't eat if nobody brought them food. They didn't drink if nobody brought them water. Talk about letting go. Talk about letting go, right? Wow. And so although it, that didn't take place in an AA meeting, spending two and a half years on a weekly basis with those women did help me work through all of the resistance that I had so that I could open up to some of those white light experiences. So I could really feel the, the hand and heart of God in my life. It, it sounds like there was somebody there modeling this and this is the way it worked for me. I got into such pain at one point because I wanted to drink so bad in my second week sober that I decided to say a prayer because I had seen and heard all these people talking about this and I don't believe it, but I, I guess I'll try it because I've got to do something. Something's got to give and I don't want to drink. And then having this modeled and then for the first time, having the willingness to do something like this that I didn't believe in, it allowed me to have an experience that I can't describe in words that is, I guess, what we're talking about with a white light experience. But mm -hmm. it's like being open allowed the experience in. Absolutely. It was like those women taught me how to turn the dial on my radio to this to the station so that I could receive that experience beyond words and understand how deeply connected I am to a loving force in the universe and how safe it was to be able to stay close to that connection. I love that you also talk about how they showed you. They didn't tell you. You know, like a, any good proper alcoholic, don't tell me what to do um, because I am going to bucket. But when people showed me what worked for them, they talked with me about what worked for them. They showed me how they were doing things. It worked for me. And the fact that I was able to relate to them because I knew we had some type of shared experience. Now within AA, it's obviously alcohol has driven me to my knees and, and the person that I'm talking with has, has a similar experience within the, the realm of these, these women that you were working with. There was a different relation, but I am hearing a relation of seeking. Absolutely. And my sponsor, I do believe saved my life because she kept me connected to AA until I could see that AA would continue to save my life. Her taking me to these women every week, the commitment that she showed, the, her unconditional love, me being able to relate to her as an alcoholic, her unconditional acceptance of me allowed me to 
stay close enough to AA and close enough to these nuns to be able to heal that resistance, that fear, the pain around any kind of spirituality so that I could open up to the recovery value of that in my life. At no time did any of those women try to tell me that I I shouldn't think the way that I thought, I shouldn't be the way that I am. They just kept pointing me towards ultimately an easier, softer way to live. They just kept pointing me towards love and towards forgiveness and towards open-heartedness. That's really powerful. Allison, can you give an example of now that you're sober for 32 years and you're living your life and you're not drinking? I assume if you're like most of us, that alcohol is no longer a problem for you. What is something in your life that has happened where you have turned to the program to be able to accept or manage the situation? Someplace where the program has worked for you. Oh my gosh. Well, this, the name of this podcast is the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour. So (laughs) I'm going to have to really boil this down because I could really talk about this for hours. I mean, in the broadest sense, there's not an area of my life that AA hasn't been the solution in some form or fashion. The principles of recovery, the traditions of recovery, all of it in some form or fashion is the solution in my life, which is what I was always looking for. And the thing that comes to mind most readily today is being a parent in parenting my own children. So I have two children. I gave birth to them both in sobriety. They've never seen me drink. And the mom that they know is not the person I was before AA. It's almost like they're in their mid-20s now, both of them. And so when I share a little bit with them, because I've always been intentional about, you know, how much to share, but when I share a little bit with them now, it's the looks on their faces are like, I I can't see that. I don't, I don't see that reality in the mom that I know. And to me, that's one of the biggest daily living miracles that sobriety has given me because although they had hardships in their lives growing up and they had challenges like everybody does, they didn't have a drunk parent and they didn't have the insanity of that. They had a pretty stable parent who was, you know, making mistakes on a regular basis, but making mistakes kind of in the everyday realm. And I owe every bit of that to AA, every bit of that to the principles that AA teaches me, every bit of that to the spiritual underpinning of everything in AA and recovery and the traditions of the program. Yeah, I feel that it amazes me, the the people that I've met in the rooms over the years that I never knew was drunk until we share our stories. And the, the difficulty I have even imagining them as a drunk. It's crazy how this happens to us. I love it. And then you can't pull it back out. I've heard that everyone has two lives. The second one begins when they realize that they only have one life. Yep. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. And, you know, I think to me, that's the essence of transformation, that's kind of the daily living example of being rocketed into the fourth dimension. That's stuff I couldn't even conceptualize before I got yeah. over. 
stuff I didn't even know I wanted. (laughs) I want to go to the fourth dimension. (laughs) (laughs) Allison, thank you so much. So now we've got something where this old timer experience of yours and this transformation that you've experienced, we're going to play a question for you from someone who has submitted a question to ask the old timer. Hi, my name is Charlie. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. And my question for the old timer is, how do I handle friends who don't think I'm really an alcoholic? I'm new to recovery and they just think I need to control my drinking, but I've tried that and it hasn't worked so far. Going to meetings has helped me, but I've got these friends who all are trying to tell me that I'm not really an alcoholic. So how do I handle that? Charlie, what a great question. And I'm excited that I'm the one who gets to answer this because this is really relevant in my experience. You know, as I said earlier, I got sober when I was 21. And so I had a lot of people, peers that were saying similar things to me. And then older people who were saying silly things like, well, drop more than you probably had time to drink. And I had all kinds of people weighing in, if you will, on whether I was actually an alcoholic or not, which when you think about it is just absurd. It's just absurd because the essence of to thine own self be true is to be honest to your innermost self about what you know to be the truth. And so I would say to you, Charlie, that in my experience, that's kind of the foundation I have to come from before I specifically address any way it's coming up. If I know, if I've admitted to my innermost self that I'm a real alcoholic, then it's from that place I can decide how I want to handle these social situations, which can come up and be awkward because, you know, social situations and social awkwardness is a real part of life outside or even inside of AA. And so Figuring out how to handle that helps me gain confidence in learning how to live life on life's terms. So the first thing is in doing that, for me, it's not about convincing anybody. Other people are really allowed to think whatever they need to think about me. They're allowed to question whether I'm an alcoholic. They're allowed to question my sobriety. They're allowed to question whatever seems important for them to question. And I don't have to hook into that. I can allow them to think what they think, and I can still stay connected to the truth that is in my heart. And to me, that's the essence of to thine own self be true, because then I can be around people who believe diverse things than I believe. They have different ways of living than I live. They have different priorities in their lives. And being able to stay true and hold on to who I am and what my priorities are and what my values are and what my principles are allows me to stay in connection with other people without feeling threatened. And that was something that was really hard for me to do before sobriety. And so I would say to you specifically, Charlie, to lean into what you know to be true and let that guide any specific conversation that you have with them. What do you say to someone who comes up and says, no, 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 here, have a drink. No, 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 I I know, no, but here, have a drink. It depends. I've said things like, well, I'm really allergic to alcohol, so I'm not going to do that. Or 
I've said things as simple as I'm not drinking today, or I've said things like, well, you know what, if I start, if I take that drink, I can guarantee you there's not enough alcohol in this establishment for me. (laughs) It just depends on the context. It depends on what the purpose of the social engagement is. I'll say all kinds of things, but the most effective thing I have found over the years is to say, I appreciate it, but I'm allergic. It can be a really difficult situation to be in, to have that put in in front of you, right in your face. I've been in two situations where no was not accepted. One was in very early sobriety. And I was at a July 4th fireworks in a neighborhood. And a guy was out there with his mason jar of moonshine, passing it around and would not take no for an answer. So I, I, I brought it up to my mouth which was dangerous at that time, but it was the only way I found that I could get out of the situation. I brought it up to my mouth and faked it and then passed it on. Another situation was years into sobriety where I was in uh, South Korea. Big drinking culture there. I was at a work event. They put the beer with the shot glass to do the boilermaker right there in front of me, in front of all of us. And I pushed it away and they pushed it forward and I pushed it away and I, they pushed it forward. And finally, I just left it where it was and kept on doing what I was doing, which was having conversations and such like that. And eventually, you know, I was able to get up and mill around and not worry about it. But there are those situations where they don't take no as an answer. And my capability of dealing with that improved with time and recovery. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I th- What hard situations. I think it speaks to how uh, it speaks to belonging. We all want to belong. And in social situations, you know, everybody wants to have that sense of belonging and and feels that when everybody's participating and drinking culturally is is a way that people have found that belonging with other people for generations and generations. And so I think you're right. It is tough sometimes to be able to stay true to that and navigate the awkwardness of the social situation. It is indeed. And, you know, one of the key things that was told to me early on that obviously I didn't listen to in that moonshine situation was when I go to these places, I need to be prepared to leave. Yes. It's okay to leave. Now in the cultural situations, it's a different thing. And that has happened to me in Ireland. And the people I was with, I told them beforehand, I'm an alcoholic. And the owner of the pub came in and set down the special beer that's brewed just in our tavern. And it's just for you. And I brought it to you for free and really intent on me drinking it. And he reached over and pushed it away and said, it's okay. I'm going to drink this. He's not drinking. And he took care of it for me. So it was good to have an ally. That's another good point is to have an ally. And to be honest, in you know, I always had an exit strategy as well. And I still do all these years later. If I'm going to be in a social situation, it's automatic now. I think through, you know, what's my exit strategy going to be? Should that be something that's necessary for me? Same here. It's an important part of my recovery is being able to leave gracefully, sometimes quietly. Without breaking into tears like we're <laughs> going to have to do as we leave today. Oh. Don't cry, Don. Oh, because it's been so much fun. Thanks, Allison. <laughs> Take care. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Don. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And thank you, Charlie, for the question.
alcoholic named Al was told by his bartender that he had had enough to drink. So Al got up and walked out the front door. He walked around the corner and came back into the same bar through the side door and sat down at the bar. The bartender gave him a look and said, Al, I just told you I'm not serving you anymore. You've had enough. Okay. Okay. I'm leaving. Al got up, walked out, came through the back again, and sat at the bar. The bartender said, Al, how many times do I have to tell you I'm not serving you anymore? That's strange. Let me ask you something. How many bars do you work at? (laughs) (laughs) It's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Hey folks, just a reminder that we'd love for you to call in with your Ask the Old Timer questions and recovery-related jokes. That number is 212-870-3418. That's 212-870-3418. Also, if you use hashtag heard in a meeting on social media, we may wind up reading your post on the show anonymously, of course. You can always write us at podcast at aagrapevine.org with comments, suggestions, and such. All this and more is also available at aagrapevine.org slash podcast.